once again. Welcome to Grace. So glad all you guys are here this morning. And just as Kevin was saying, uh, it's an exciting time to be a part of Grace, right? We have everything uh, happening right now We have from, from Tiffin. Uh, me personally, our youth ministry between 45th Street and Fuse jam-packed summer. And so for the first two weeks of the summer, I went to merch camp. And then when I got back from that, the next day, I left for our high school Kentucky trip. Had great trips, but during that two-week span, a lot of stuff happened here. I came back into the building, and the, we had a new roof put on. We had our uh, black, you know, our parking lot resurfaced. The bathrooms got a makeover, and nothing bigger than a building being chosen in Tiffin. And so we are excited about that. Can't wait to be a part of that community and see what God does there. Um, and actually, because I was gone those two weeks, and that's when they made that decision, I wasn't able to see the building. So I had no concept of what it looked like, no idea where it was, you know, what kind of building it was. And I actually, last week, uh, we have our staff meeting, and then we usually go out to eat after the meeting. And we were at Jimmy G's, and I told Pastor Kevin, I said, hey, I, you know, I've been gone. I have no idea what this building looks like. You know, can you explain it to me? Can you show it to me? He said, yeah, no problem. I got you. And so he actually had a set of blueprints there that, that he showed me. And so what he gave to me, I took a picture of, and I want to show you guys here this morning. And uh, this is it. <laughs> there she is, our new Tiffin campus. I mean, doesn't it just come alive? You know, you can see it right there on the corner of 224 and 1, the main three sections of the building, beautiful place that we can expand, room to grow. It's perfect. And as you guys are looking at this, I want you to keep this in mind, that years of preparation and work and prayer have gone into this, okay? We've put a lot of thought into it, and we have nothing on our team except professionals that do great work, as you can tell, and so we are excited for this new Tiffin campus. Can't wait to see what God does, but whether it's that or any other blueprint, or what does it do? What, what's the point of a blueprint? It's a plan. It's a model, it's a template to be able to move forward that you can kind of base off of and continue moving. And that's exactly what our new series is about. We're dissecting 1 Timothy, a letter written by Paul, and it was written, just a little background on it, it was about 30 years after Jesus. So Jesus, he lived, he died, he rose again, ascended into heaven, and around 30 years after that, during the beginning of the church age, Paul is writing to this man named Timothy. Timothy, he's a young guy. He's a young leader, a young pastor who was put in charge of the church in Ephesus. And as Paul's writing to him, you can see this very personal connection that he's not just writing to, you know, a, a distant friend or someone that he kind of knows. Paul cares about Timothy. And he actually calls him uh, in the first two verses, he refers to him as my true child of the faith. And so either Paul, is, or either Paul has been the one that directly led him to Christ, or at the bare minimum, he, Timothy is Paul's protege, okay? He's the new up-and-coming person that Paul is training, that Paul has a hand in his life, and he's trying to instruct him on how to do this job. And they ended up working alongside each other in Ephesus, and when Paul left, when he traveled somewhere else, he left Timothy in charge. 
And it was a big job because he was the one that had to guide this church. He was the one that had to instruct them, that had to shepherd them. And it was a difficult job for a few reasons. One is we have to remember that this is the first century. Okay, this is shortly after Jesus left. And so Timothy, he had to answer the questions of church order and instruction and discipline. Okay, he didn't have the luxury like myself and like some of us. He didn't have the luxury of growing up in a church that followed the Bible. Timothy was the one that had to answer those questions. Using God's wisdom and guidance, he had to tackle the concept of how church should be done. And he was the first one to kind of pioneer, or one of the first ones in the first century to pioneer how to do church in honoring God. Another reason why it was difficult was just because of who Timothy was. All right, he, we can probably relate to him, some of us in this room, but he was more of a, a type B personality. Okay, he was not outgoing, he was probably more reserved, and it's said that he is timid, that he's often fearful, so much so that Paul goes out of his way to encourage him and says, you know what, Timothy, even though you're young, do not let anyone look down on you because of your youth. Doesn't matter how old you are, you can still be an example. You can still be an example in faith, in purity, in conduct. All these different things, people can look up to you even though you're young. Because Timothy, again, he's timid. He's afraid. This is a big task for him to handle. And Paul consistently encourages him of that. Even though he may feel, hey, I'm not ready for this. Or he may feel inexperienced. He may feel overwhelmed. Paul encourages him every step of the way. And another reason why this job is difficult, as we're going to quickly see as we begin reading the passage, is that there was a lot of false teaching going on in this church. In the Ephesian church, there were people teaching things that simply were not true. And so let's pick up in 1 Timothy chapter 1, if you have your Bibles. We're starting in verses 3 through 4. Verse 3 says, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia... Remain on Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths, endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. And so Paul introduces himself, and he gets right to the point. In verse 3, he is pleading with Timothy. He's begging Timothy to say, hey, you got to stay in Ephesus. Okay, you are needed here. There is a job for you to do. And that tells us probably at some point, Timothy was either wanting to or considering leaving Ephesus. And for whatever reason that may be, Paul wanted him there because he knew there was a job for him to do. And it was because there were teachers communicating false doctrine. They were communicating these things about God and about Scripture that were said to have been true, said to have been biblical, but were completely against God's word. And it was passed off as God's truth. But again, this is the first century. And so their standard for truth, you know, now we have the entire Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, but Timothy is kind of living the New Testament right now. And so their standard for truth was the Old Testament was Jesus's words, the words of Jesus, and the teaching of the apostles. People like P. 
Peter, people like Paul and John, anything added or changed from that standard was deemed to be untrue because it doesn't match up with the rest of Scripture and what Jesus told them. It says they gave way to myths and genealogies. And basically, this is just um, Paul saying that they kind of got wrapped up in their culture, using different stories, using different traditions to justify their behavior. And it wasn't purely biblical Old Testament. It was things that they'd maybe heard or they want to use for their own benefit. And it wasn't right. And people were adding things. People were twisting the gospel. Not only to where it just didn't help anybody. It wasn't only annoying to Timothy and the church. It wasn't just a nuisance. It wasn't just noticed. These false teachers, when they began teaching, it caused division. It caused controversy. And it actually brought more questions than answers. And it may be safe to to kind of conclude that what they were teaching was this legalistic kind of form of salvation where, you know what, if you do X, Y, Z, if you follow the law, you're good. But that's not what the Bible tells us. And that's not what Jesus told them either. And they knew that. And so people were twisting the gospel. And And something to take notice of that I think is very important is that Paul took this seriously. He had zero tolerance for these false teachers. Okay, in verse 3, he tells Timothy, he says, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. And this word instruct, it might be a little different than how we view it now. It's not this like gentle, hey, let me teach you, let me show you, let me guide you on how to not teach false doctrine. It's not that. The word instruct is a very, it's almost a command. It's very forceful. It's very strong. And so when Paul is telling Timothy this, he is saying, hey, instruct them, command them to stop. It's not helping them. It's not helping anybody else. You need to command them to stop. It's, it, the word almost demands like obedience. Now to me, what comes to mind, uh, I, I remember I have a older brother who's about four or five years older than me. And uh, when we were younger, probably like 15 years ago, we went out and played putt-putt with my Aunt Barb. And, um, you know, fun day. We had a good time. But towards the end, uh, what do brothers do? They fight, right? That's our number one job. And uh, we got in the car. We were getting ready to drive home. And me and my brother were in the back seat. And my aunt was in the driver's seat. I don't remember what we were saying. I don't remember the details. All I remember is that at, there came a point where my aunt said, you know what? Enough is enough, okay? And so we were arguing. We were hitting each other. I don't remember what was going on. And I just remember her turning 180 degrees in the car, zoop, and just yelling at us, you know, very forcefully, commanding us, say, hey, you're done with this, okay? This ends now. You guys are, you know, acting foolish, whatever. I don't remember what she said. But I just remember the tone that she had. And she said, you know what? I don't, we shouldn't have to put up with this, and rightfully so, because she shouldn't. But it's that same kind of tone, it's that same mentality of commanding them to stop. Paul takes this seriously. In Titus 1, he says that false teachers, their mouths should be silenced. So basically, Paul again is saying, hey, we need to shut these guys up because they are doing more harm than good. They're causing a lot of damage. In Galatians chapter 1, 
Paul says that if anyone tells you a gospel different than what Jesus communicated or what I'm telling you, they are to be accursed. They are to be ashamed of themselves. They have no business telling that gospel wrong, giving you that wrong information. And when I kind of read verses like that, my natural instinct is, okay, it's kind of harsh. It's a little severe, but I don't think it is. To believe wrongly about the gospel is to be eternally lost. If we don't correctly understand and accept what Jesus has done for us, then we pay the penalty for our sin. And and the Bible tells me what I deserve is death. I deserve hell for what I have done against God, disobeying him. And And Paul took that seriously. And that's why here at Grace, we make our number one priority the gospel, communicating that message clearly, biblically, to where we are protecting the truth, to where we don't want anyone to be confused. The only way to have a relationship with God, the only way to get to God, to earn, I'm sorry, we can't earn salvation. The only way to obtain salvation is through Jesus. And so if, if me or anybody else comes on this stage and says that you can get to God another way that doesn't involve Jesus, okay, I want all of you to just run out those doors, okay? Because somewhere along the line, we've messed up. But we have no plans of doing that. Just like Paul, he was committed to protecting the truth of the gospel. Because this good news of what Jesus has done for me, what he's done for all of us, it is too important, it is too life-changing, it is too transformative for us to miscommunicate. Because we are dealing with people's eternities. This news could change not only someone's life, but where they spend eternity. Knowing that God created us. And even though he created us, I, find, I found many ways to disobey him. I messed up. God's perfect. He is sinless. I'm not. My sin deserves a punishment. And unfortunately, I can't do anything to right that wrong. It is only by trusting and putting our belief in Jesus that he died on the cross for our sins. The Bible says that if we believe in him, that we will gain forgiveness, a fresh start, eternal life that we can't find anywhere else outside of Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the truth that Paul and Timothy were so committed to making sure that it stayed pure, making sure that it was correct, making sure it was biblical. And we want to do the same thing. Paul is writing this to Timothy. You know, it's written to an individual, but it's meant for all of us. It's meant for the church. And so he wants to make sure that we are communicating the gospel correctly. Because getting it wrong, miscommunicating the gospel, means potentially hindering someone from having a clear understanding of their creator. And that's dangerous. But getting it right, communicating it correctly means potentially leading someone to having a personal relationship with their God. And that's why we're here. We want to help people encounter Jesus. We want to lead people to him. And Paul continues in verses 5 through 7 to show why these false teachers were so effective. And we're going to read verse 5, but we're going to come back to that later. So 
keep a mental note. We're coming back to verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. It says they turn to fruitless discussion. Basically, what they're talking about has no value. It's meaningless because it's wrong. They're empty words. And it says that they were wanting to be teachers of the law. Okay, they didn't want to communicate God's word effectively. That wasn't their aim. They wanted to be a teacher because they wanted the title. They wanted the authority. They wanted the following. They didn't say, all right, people need to hear this message. They need to hear the gospel. The false teachers were saying, they need to hear me. And that is a, those are vastly different motives. And that goes I mean, to me as well. If I'm here on this stage and I'm speaking just to, to get praise, to impress um, you know, my coworkers, to impress anyone else that's hearing me, I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. But we're doing it, Paul says, with the goal of love from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. And these false teachers, they were very, very crafty with their presentation. Okay, what they were teaching was wrong, but they weren't dumb. They knew what they were doing. In verse 7, it says that they are saying, I'm sorry, the matters about which they make confident assertions. So what they were saying was wrong, but I think a big reason why they were so effective was because they were sure of themselves. They were confident doesn't matter what was being said, they were preaching it boldly and proudly, and it made other people kind of second-guess themselves. I know for me personally, I am a very gullible person, okay, I'll, I'll admit it, uh, so much so that I've kind of conditioned myself to, uh, if anyone tells me something new or something I've never heard before, my natural instinct is to like, not believe them because I know I'm gullible. And anything anyone tells me, I'll believe it. Uh, for example, we have uh, a guy on staff, David Stacy's. A lot of you guys know him. He's our financial manager here. Does a great job. Good guy, hard worker. Uh, and every time we cross paths, you know, I don't work, work with him too often. But when I do, you know, I have no reason to believe that he would lie to me. Or I have no reason to believe that he wouldn't tell me the truth, which I was wrong. But... Uh, for example, we had a Fight Club mid-event a few months ago, and for the event, they bought, I, it, was, it was like two or three hundred tennis balls, all right? So it's, it's not every day you do that, right? And so I was being nosy, and I asked David, I said, hey, that's got to be expensive. Like, how much was that? And without missing a beat, without missing a step, he was, you know, thinking quick, and he said, no, they're not expensive at all. Actually, we bought them cheaper because they're cheaper if you buy them deflated and then inflate them yourself. <laughs> and I go, no way. Like my mind was blown, right? And I'm thinking to myself, why have I never heard this before? Like this is, this is big news. I would have bought like a thousand tennis balls by now, you know what I'm saying? And he was so confident. He had all these like, you know, all this false information that he was just, you know, listing out so proudly and confidently to where it made me second guess myself like, huh, 
I must be the crazy one because I've never heard of this before. And so long story short, uh, about 15 or 20 minutes of me searching eBay and Google, I uh, realized that, you know what, at least to my knowledge, it's not true. And so, but the reason he was able to, to kind of, you know, joke with me was because he was so confident. I started to second guess myself. And if we're looking at Timothy's situation at the church in Ephesus, it was the same thing. These people were teaching so confidently that Paul warns us about that. Actually, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 15, also written to the church in Ephesus, Paul says this, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth, in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And Paul continues to warn them, look, we should be so confident, so sure of what we know to be true, the gospel, that when we hear something else, we shouldn't be automatically believing it. We shouldn't, um, like he was saying, be tossed here and there, back and forth by the waves. We should be grounded in the truth of the gospel. And we are protecting the fact that it's truth and it changes lives. In the Ephesian church, they were battling with believing false doctrine, hearing something different. And he continues to go on, verses 8 through 11. Paul says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. These people want to be teachers of the law, and when Paul is referring to the law, he means the Old Testament. The legal parts of it, the Mosaic law, Moses received the Ten Commandments from God. We see that in Exodus. And this passage, he's saying that that law is meant for everyone. It's not made for righteous people, which, you know, last time I checked, I'm not perfect. I don't think anyone else outside of Jesus is. And so because of that, the law is for everyone, and it is showing us that no one is perfect and no one escapes judgment. And that sounds like bad news. But it's bad news, and at the same time, Paul is telling us that the law is good if used correctly because it shows us God's standard, it shows us our sin, where we fall short, and it shows us our need for a Savior. It shows us that we are in need of some, something or someone greater than ourselves because we can't match up. It shows us that we fall short, and because of that, it is a necessary part of the gospel. If there's no bad news that we fall short, that means there can be no good news of what Jesus has done and his redemption and his forgiveness. Normally, there has to be bad news for there to be good news. And that's what Paul is telling us the law does for us. He's not saying ignore it. He's not saying, look, it's in the Old Testament, forget about it. He's saying it's good and it's beneficial. 
See, the law gives us parameters for godly living. It reveals our sin, and it reminds us that we need a Savior. And ultimately, it points to Jesus. And once we realize that, once we put our trust in Jesus, we say, hey, I can't do it on my own. There's nothing I can do on my own merit, on my own righteousness, by my own effort, by my own work to get to God. I need help. And God's, because he loves us, he sent us help through Jesus. Once we realize that and put our trust in the gospel, things should change. See, Paul has been comparing authentic teaching to false teaching. And he's saying people that teach false doctrine, it brings lies, it brings confusion, controversy, arguments, division. They're kind of focusing on things that just aren't important. And they even had selfish ambitions. But he's saying true biblical teaching, there's a different goal. And that's where I want to take it back to verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 says, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But the goal of our instruction is love. And this type of love that Paul is talking about, let me just make something clear. This love is not weak. This love is not self-seeking. This love is not something that we focus on ourselves. This love is not an obligation. The love that Paul is talking about is a choice. It involves self-denial. It's trustworthy. It's active. And it benefits others. And he's saying the goal of understanding the gospel, the the goal of understanding what God has done for us, it should result in love. And because he's realizing that our mark as a believer, as a church, what we should be known for is love. Not arguing, not division, not hypocrisy, love. And he focuses on that. And this kind of love flows from three sources. The first one is a pure heart. We can have a pure heart Because the Holy Spirit has changed us from the inside out. It's not my effort. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Realizing that our intentions should be pure and our motives should be to honor God every step of the way. We have a pure heart. We also can have a good conscience. And we know what what a conscience is. It's kind of our self-judging faculty of, okay, either I feel good about what I'm doing or I feel bad about what I'm doing. Either I'm confident or I'm guilty. And Paul is saying that we can have a good conscience, which is just integrity of the heart. We can have a good conscience by living in line with God's commands, living in harmony with other people and especially the church. And ultimately, we can have a good conscience knowing that we have been forgiven from our sins, that Jesus died for those. We're still going to face the effects of them as we're living here on earth, but he died for those sins. We no longer have to feel guilty because we have been declared righteous. We have been justified by what Jesus did on the cross. We can have a pure heart. We can have a good conscience, and we can have sincere faith because we are committed to God and his word. 
Faith involves correct belief about God and who he is. And genuine faith, sincere faith, is always followed by action. Always followed by action. And from these three things, pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith, love comes forth in our life. In 1 John chapter 4, we learn a little bit more about love. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. As believers... As the church, as Grace Community Church, we, our lives should clearly display God's love. His love for us should be evident in our life, clearly. People should be able to see that. And it should change the way that we act and the way that we react to everything. It should change the way that we view people. No longer do I just view people, oh, that's my family member, that's my friend, that's my coworker. That's my classmate. We view people all the same in the sense that they need Jesus just as much as I do. It should change the way that we treat people. Not just being a good person, not just being a friendly neighbor, a good citizen, but we love them with the intentions of showing them God's love, especially those who may not treat us the best. The people that it's even more difficult to love, we need to love those people because God loved us. It should change the way that we deal with confrontation because it's only natural, right? We're going to, at some point, not see eye to eye with everyone. And when that time comes, it's not about making ourselves look good. It's not about getting in the last word because, oh yeah, I, I, I won that conflict. It's not about that. It's about encouraging the other person, helping them, and loving them. And also, by the way, it means not being afraid to hold them to a standard. God calls us to hold other believers to a high standard of living because, because we know what the gospel is capable of. And so loving someone means going out of your way to say, hey, I've noticed this kind of... Uh, you're kind of falling a little short in this area. And so let me help you and let's see how we can figure out a better way to honor God in this scenario. Okay, and so when we do confrontation, we love them and we're putting them first. And it means not being afraid to call sin, sin. Realizing that other believers, as a church, we should be holding each other accountable to live according to the gospel. And it should change the way that we forgive. Realizing that no one can do anything worse to me than I've already done to God. And yet, in the midst of my sin, even though I don't deserve it, he forgave me. Through Jesus, I find forgiveness. And because of that, I can forgive other people too. Love should change the way we do everything. In this series, as we're going through God's plan for our church... Paul is printing, he's writing out this you know, model of what the church should be. And Paul's vision is that the, a community of believers, a community of people that are following Jesus, would create this environment of sound doctrine, correct teaching, and sound conduct, living a life of love, 
and that we would be used as a tool, as, a in, as an instrument to go out to the world and show people God's love. Because that's different. He hoped that the end result would be a distinctive people in the world. A distinctive people that we are set apart, that we stand out. Why? Because we have God's love and it is clear in our lives. And you don't find that anywhere else outside of Jesus. You may go to work, you may go to Twitter, you may turn on the news, and a lot of times you don't see people living with this idea of, I want to show God's love. But as the church, as believers, that should be our mark, that we show love to others, that we show love to others even when it's difficult, that we are showing love to people not because I have to, not because it's an obligation, not because it's on my own power, on my own effort. It's not just because I'm trying harder to love you, therefore I love you. That's not it. We love because God has gripped my life and completely transformed it. He has completely transformed it. And because of that, I want to show his love with my life. I want to showcase that love with everything I have and give him 100% of the credit. And that's what Paul is hoping for the church. It starts with correctly understanding and accepting and putting our trust in Jesus. And from that is love. For God, and because of our love for God, we have love for people. And so that's my challenge today. Are we living a life of love? Can people see that in our lives? Because the Bible tells us it's a natural result of knowing God, having a relationship with him. And we can be confident that we have a pure heart because the Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out. We can be confident that we have a good conscience because we have been completely forgiven. And we can have a sincere faith that is grounded in God's word, and we are committed to God and his truth. And from those three things, love comes forth. And it should be clearly evident in our lives as a believer and as the church. That's what Paul wants for us, and that's what God is telling us our plan is, that we should love not only you know, who it's easy to, but we love everyone. Let's stand this morning as we pray our way up. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. You created us, and even though we don't deserve it, we don't deserve your favor, we haven't earned in any way, shape, or form your love, but God, you still chose to love us, and we thank you so much for that. We thank you for the gospel and how life-changing it is, and we thank you that from it, it impacts our lives so that we can love others with a pure heart good conscience, and a sincere faith. God, we thank you so much for what you've done for us. And I pray that as a church, as a group, as a community of believers coming together to, to live for you, that we would show love, that we would go out into our areas, into our communities, into our jobs, into our classes, and wherever we find ourselves, love other people. And not just love from us, but your love. 
And we thank you for giving us the perfect example in Jesus. We love you. We praise you. In your name. Amen.